1: 18 plus to my right is bounty loss series lead and jake k hill himself rick dalton and to my left is rick stunt double cliff booth so rick uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does actors are required to do a, a lot of dangerous stuff
2: cliff here is meant to help carry the
1: load is that uh, how you describe your job cliff what carrying his load yeah, it's about right.
2: <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Quentin Tarantino's sixth collaboration with three-time Oscar-winning cinematographer Robert Richardson, following Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, and The Hateful Eight. This time, Richardson's photography gives an impressive period look to Tarantino's 1969 Hollywood set story. Leonardo DiCaprio plays Rick Dalton, an actor who worries about becoming a has-been, and his friendship with his stunt double, played by Brad Pitt. The story includes a string of fictional characters as well as real-life characters, such as Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, Roman Polanski, Bruce Lee, and the Manson family. The ensemble cast includes Al Pacino, Dakota Fanning, Austin Butler, Margaret Qualley, and Julia Butters. Key members of Tarantino's team also includes production designer Barbara Ling, costume designer Ariane Phillips, and editor Fred Raskin. Bob Richardson, who won Academy Awards for JFK, The Aviator, and Hugo, joins us today. I'm Carolyn Giardina. Welcome to the Hollywood Reporters Behind the
1: Screen.
0: So,
2: Bob, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: That's my pleasure.
2: Earlier this year, you received the ASC Lifetime Achievement Award, and Quentin presented that award to you. And I'm going to quote what he said during his presentation. He said, I've never had as much fun making movies since I had since starting to make movies with Robert Richardson. And then he said of your first lunch meeting, I can honestly say it was the greatest first date of my life because when the date was over, I asked him to marry me. (laughs) What makes this relationship work so well?
1: Well, I wish he had asked me to marry him. (laughs) I'd be better off for it. What makes this relationship so great is that we've found a bond by this time in this film. You have to repeat your relationships with directors to get to this level. A first-time meeting and a first-time film, even a second-time film, there's still these movements in and out of what a relationship should be. With Quentin and Kill Bill, He was a bit curious, like, okay, Robert Richardson, he's done all these films with Marty and Oliver, and he knew them all, and he thought, like, will he be there to support me? And initially, he had some concepts that perhaps my crew should be shifted. I should bring in his grip and his gaffer, possibly his first AC. And we went through a series of talks, and I explained that when I make a movie, I make a movie for the director. And my crew makes a movie for the director. They don't make a movie for me. I'm not trying to enhance myself. I'm trying to create what the director wants. And through the process of Kill Bill, he did allow me to bring my crew. He found a way to love them. And we've become a family, and we've repeated often with the same group. And at this point, why this film was unlike others that we've accomplished together. It was the most joy I'd seen in Quentin's face throughout the process. From day one to the end, he was constantly in a state of high, and that was a pleasure. On set, we worked very closely together. He had extremely complicated shots within the movie, and we just worked towards a goal.
2: You really wanted to create 1969 Hollywood in this movie. You shot 35 millimeter anamorphic, is that correct?
1: Yes, we shot 35 millimeter.
2: And tell us about locations, how many shooting days, tell us a little bit about the production.
1: Well, the production, it was a long shoot, I think it was 100 days, maybe plus or minus, I'm not entirely certain, with almost equal number of locations or sets. And it was quite complicated to fit it all into the box. So producers need to be congratulated on actually fitting. It was a pretty robust script. What I found is that we struggled through, of course, as you've, since you've seen the film, Hollywood Boulevard, to recreate Hollywood Boulevard at that time period. Not just in the production design, which was quite remarkable by Barbara, but also by Ari in terms of costuming. Because those two elements are what brings the time period of Hollywood Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard, the freeways out to Spahn Ranch, you know, and even into the home of Rick Dalton or the trailer of Brad. So it was a complicated shoot, and not to mention Margot, because I sometimes fail to mention enough about her because she was a tremendous spark in the movie. And although she's sort of outside the two pivotal two, she is the reason why there's a balance in the film. And like her sequences dancing, as you know, to Paul Revere and the Raiders, as Manson comes up. And so for me, it was a struggle to keep it within a certain number of days. In other words, it's a short period of time period. Uh, Supposedly, there's six months that are some shifts in his career, which we witness, and then very difficult nights, very difficult nights. I mean, driving sequences on freeways are always, especially with film, because we're working at a 500 ASA versus something where, if I were shooting digitally, I might even be at 3200, where I can depend upon the lighting that's natural. Ian Kincaid, the gaffer, basically took... I believe it was nine condors with large moon boxes which are well they're like maxis and broad strokes that softly illuminated the freeway for about three quarters of a mile on top of using uh lights placed on the overpasses etc it was extremely difficult and it's a minor sequence in the film in terms of brad's just heading back home from having just left uh leo dicaprio and he's heading to his trailer but it had to be done because there's no way to see it otherwise so we lit
2: and quentin has quite a bit in the cars
1: yes like
2: we spent in the cars in l.a
1: yeah i mean we, we all did and i think when, when you talk about that the car if you notice there's never a moment in a car that you don't hear the radio playing which is a key character in the film it's as large and as important as brad leo or margot or anyone it is a character that keeps us embedded in the time period of 1969. that i think has been not stated enough and probably should be because it's a brilliant soundtrack that leads us all the way through the various movements because he split pretty much in equal numbers the time you spend with leo alone the time you spend with brad alone the time you spend with margot alone or the time that you get with brad and leo together right and i think his movement is lovely how it shifts in waves and the music underneath keeps this very steady line
2: You mentioned the challenge of Hollywood Boulevard. Would you elaborate on that?
1: Well, Hollywood Boulevard was difficult in the sense that to take over Hollywood Boulevard, we had initially three and a half blocks or four blocks, whatever it was, that we could change back, that we could afford to change back. Initially, we were anticipating doing much larger. And so they went in chunks of space. And uh, closing it down is not an easy task due to the fact that you're dealing with a number of people that are tourists as well as a number of People are just shopping. It was complex to close. And uh, once accepted, the city was remarkable. Also, the businesses that were involved on the street in giving their cooperation to allow us to do it.
2: Overall, how would you describe the look and the feel that you wanted to create? And did you look at any movies as references or things like that?
1: I looked at so many films as references, um, but also a lot of television shows. Rolling Thunder is one film that comes out First of all, because Quentin wanted to talk about there's a level of darkness within a particular sequence within it that he wanted to emulate in terms of darkness and being able to see through the darkness. And that evolved from that point to more or less the last act. And the darkness was very much involved with how we perceived the ending versus how we perceived other parts. But I also did a lot of research into Lancer Alias, Smith & Jones, Gunsmoke, Mavericks, all the television series. Basically, you have Leo beginning in that time period, which is more or less... And
2: as a TV actor. As a
1: TV actor in a Western town and being a bounty hunter, which is somewhat similar to one in Dead or Alive in terms of McQueen. And I think the reference of that is very important because McQueen went on to become a major actor in film, as did... Clint Eastwood from Rawhide. So these movements of those actors into films, I mean, when you consider it, it's rather odd that Eastwood had to go to Italy to become a star in America. Then he made some of the, the finest Westerns of the spaghetti Western genre, period, and has done so since he returned. But I think that was what, to me, with Leo is so vital. His character had to make those movements. And if you watch him, he's... He is at that early stage where they both were, McQueen and and Eastwood, and he's at a height of a a series, and he basically sabotaged that series. And as a result, he began to tumble down into a certain number of films that didn't have the level of success necessary. And so his career fell into a pattern that was a, a B pattern. You know, it's like, um, now he's back up or second to whoever the lead is of Man from U.N.C.L.E. or any film that you want to talk like. For example, that conversation that uh, Al Pacino has inside of Musso and Frank, right. which is pointing out, are you playing the bad guy? To yeah, Of course, so you're always getting beaten up. And I think that that's vital because I feel the film is a little bit about mortality and all of us, that we reach a certain part of our lives for all people in all careers. You hit a peak, or what you think is a peak, and then you're offered a choice and you either instinctually make the right choice or the wrong choice. And in this particular case, he's reticent to change. And that is ultimately part of the reason he is depressed more than Brad, who's in a similar position but is a stuntman, no longer getting a lot of work, really becoming the driver for Leo. But Brad's point of view is he's a flow. He flows with it. It just, if this is the movement we're gonna take, this is the movement we're gonna take. And when he comes out of the meeting with Al Pacino and Musso and Frank, and Leo goes, that's it, old buddy. And he goes, what do you mean? He told me the truth, basically saying, I'm a a has-been, I'm done. You know, and, and he starts to cry. And, you know, then Brad puts the sunglasses on him, makes a funny joke. But, you know, it's just what became clear is that Brad is easy to flow with that. So when he's driving with him, he goes, you know, going to Italy and shooting in Rome, hmm, that doesn't seem like such a bad idea to me. Whereas, of course, Leo's the other way. Yeah, but have you seen Italian Westerns? It's like, so his reticence is part of that downfall in his character, and I think that relates to all of us in a certain way, which you know, no matter what you do and what you achieve, there is going to be a point at which it no longer functions at the same level, for whatever reason.
2: How did you light Moussa Frank?
1: Oh, that was very difficult. I lit it with broad, soft strokes, because it's a dark facility, low ceilings, so because we're one camera, I knew where I could put the light to best Illuminate whoever I was shooting whether it was Leo or Brad or and so I would have big broad sources with Maxis or brutes or whatever bouncing through uh, off a muslin through another muslin which is somewhat you know it's, It's it's a book. They call it a book more or less and it's a very soft level of illumination on the face which generally I put to the side so that one side falls off slightly darker When we had to do things like 360s, which happened, and it's not in the movie, I had to hang panels off the ceiling that were LEDs because they were the only lights I could get up onto the ceiling and achieved it that way and would have Ian Kincaid, the gaffer, on a dimmer control so that as I made a move, I could reduce the light on one side as I came around the character on the opposite side to facilitate not having too much exposure on the back versus but it was a tremendous pleasure shoot with Al Pacino, Brad Pitt and-, and Leo DiCaprio sitting in the middle of Musso and Frank which is one of the oldest establishments you know in-, in Hollywood and it set a mood for the film it started us in a place which was extremely rich with history which is exactly what Quentin sort of alluding to old Hollywood because it was a centerpiece of old Hollywood and what is new about the place that he's moving you to which is what's coming with Easy Ride or what's coming with, you know, even such things as the Monkees or everything that started to change with the Beatles and just that entire movement towards the late 60s and early 70s with Bob Rafelson's work and uh, Martin Scorsese's work and Brian De Palma's work and Francis Coppola's work. They were all breaking down the doors, you know, including films such as Bonnie and Clyde and Sam Peckinpah with his work. The old system was moving away. Cleopatra was a slightly distant pass, along with Dr. Doolittle. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, I'm Mr. Schwartz. I me, Marvin, put it there. That your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a
0: Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody
1: order fried sauerkraut? Quentin had asked, initially, to be retro, and but yet not feel like I am making a film in 1960s or 70s, but to have the semblance or the countenance of that time period. And that I did more with the grading, in terms of we saturated the film. Quentin shoots film, but he also prints film. So every select take that he chooses, is then printed on film stock and projected for him. And everyone in the crew was invited to watch his dailies. But we found over a series of weeks that we could hone in on the color that he was looking at. It took us a little time to get the color inside of uh, Photocam to where we wanted it, which was a saturated, I'm not going to go IB Technicolor, but to have a sensibility that is closer to that early IB work or at least richer in skin tones than we're normally accustomed to, where color is more present because we've gone very desaturated in a lot of our films today. Our attempt was not to do that, and that was the attempt by all departments, including makeup, wardrobe, and production design, and that's kind of what we did, and when you ask like what's more present, present is... Well, we utilized tools that weren't available at that time period. Remote cameras, if we had to, for example, the shot that comes from the pool, over the roof, down to reveal Sharon and Polanski getting in the car, which was a massive undertaking with a massive crane that had to be remotely controlled. Those are difficult, but that sensibility of the future is really where the present exists. And I think the use of color is something which is not commonly done now. It's something which is a little bit more tomorrow
2: you briefly touched on the scenes during which they're shooting the TV series. When you did those scenes, did you approach the look or the way that you moved the camera or anything like that differently because you were replicating a TV
1: shoot? No, not exactly. And my camera is based upon Quentin's shot list. So Quentin comes in each morning with a shot list. And that shot list may have Sixteen. it might have 20, it might have 12, it might have, depending on the complexity of the shots, you know, he's a cinematographer as well, and so he knows immediately what's going to be complex to achieve. And so his shot list is generally very well thought out in the amount he needs to achieve in the number of hours we have that day. Uh, So it was really a quinton movie, you can feel it you know, craning from high above, down to the feet, feet moving up, coming up the stairs, going down, high heels coming down, or coming across through a series of slats. He's over, with Leo, you pull back and reveal the boots of the little girl. I mean, there are so many shots that are so Quentin, or Sharon inside of the movie theater, and her feet are up in the foreground, or Margaret Qualey uh, in the car with Brad driving. And you know, she's all, you know, it's like every shot, it's like, Quinton, Quinton, Quinton.
2: Do you want to talk about shooting the scenes at the ranch?
1: Uh, Spawn Ranch. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, Spawn Ranch, for me, was a nightmare location. The primary house is north. As a cinematographer, you want the primary house south, so it receives more backlight, less than front light. So his entrance had to be front light, and front light for me is. Complex to wrap my head around. I don't like the movement of light upon a face the way I like backlight, where it's more faces in shadow, but it's even. You you can balance it. And also, if you have shifts in weather, you have an easier time moving from shadow of backlight to overcast. And over four days in one location, the weather's going to change in Southern California. But when I started to shoot it, I felt all right, let's embrace. We're in Manson's world. This is his ranch, even though this used to be a movie ranch. And these are all the people, and these are all the kids that basically surround Manson. And I thought, well, if any place is going to have frontal light, this is the place to put it. So I embraced it, but it was complex because it was a little eerie as well. I mean, the scene is an eerie sequence. it It builds on you as it moves along. You already are curious enough because Brad clearly knows the ranch, he's worked there. He knows the Bruce Dern character from the time period he was working on Westerns. And so he's thinking, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense that, I think it's George, right? Whatever Bruce's character is, is having all these hippies around him. And as he progressively moves closer and closer to the house, there's a sense that all those around are starting to move in on him and surround him. And then his movement up into the house and running into Dakota, who stands there firmly. Dakota
2: Fanning's character. Yeah,
1: Dakota Fanning, who I I think can't say enough about her acting. Same thing with Austin. Can't say enough about his acting. It's like amazing to work with this this shift in generations. It's just enough said. They're just brilliant. And in that sequence, of course, they both play pivotal roles in creating that level of tension you know and also we shifted the lighting and he did finally get in past dakota who opened the door and he walks in he sees what a hole this place is you know and how unkempt it is and he walks down that hallway towards where bruce is supposedly and it takes this sort of horror turn you know there's just one little movement of light that he can step into hey, Mr. Eight years ago, you know, and he turns and he steps and leans into the light and looks, you know, you might have to shake him awake, but it's like, and he moves into darkness and you don't know what you're going to run into. And after the conversation that does take place, you realize as he exits and he comes out and he's looking and he sees just Margaret out there and uh, he looks down and he knows that this is just the next step. but. I won't spoil that one. Okay.
2: Well, you, you touched on the characters. Now, many of these actors you have worked with before. Leonardo DiCaprio starred in The Aviator, for which you won your second Oscar. And then many of the other cast members have been on previous movies with Quentin. What is the relationship like on set when you're working with them?
1: Well, I've worked with Brad three times, I think. And, and uh, I've worked with Leo Four. With both of them, I have a very easy relationship. I think they know that I'm... Going to shoot them as best I possibly can, I think they feel that there's a certain level of trust. They don't look to me in any other ways. like they don't look for guidance. I mean, they don't need it. It's like sometimes when you're with certain actors, they, they'll look to you and say, "Well, how was it?" you know and if they're not getting the feedback. And particularly when there's a video village and the director's separated, you know and there's time between the performance and there's playback happening and the actor's just sitting in front of the camera, there's this sort of circle that goes around the head and they turn towards the cameraman, in some cases, and sort of looking for reassurance or whatever. You know, and I, I believe that with Quentin, who sits directly beside camera, there is no video village. We don't have video, you can't record. There's no playback. It's only a monitor on the camera for him when he's beside me to see what's happening in terms of framing, and for the camera assistant to utilize as well. You know, James Remar worked with him a couple times because he's one of Quentin's and, and favorites, and he was there, but he was there for a short time. Michael, also, you know, Madsen, I've worked with him a number of times, and we do talk about, you know, with Michael, I'm very much on his team. Now, Quentin, you're going to get upset when you hear this. Sometimes I raise the camera for Michael so that he just looks a little better, even though you set it a little lower. I'm sorry.
2: And what about working with Julia?
1: Oh, she's a pistol. She is so mature. I mean, and sharp as a tack. That sequence with the two of them, sitting side by side with the chairs. Right? It, you know, and, and for me, that was a shift. The movie kind of was flying along for me. And then I hit that sequence. I thought, Oh, what happened? And then the acting happened. And she is just remarkable and the two of them, their age differences, disparity in that age, and the movement which we talked about a little bit earlier, which is one's dropping, and the book he's reading is the same story as his life, past the prime, you know, and and I think she's very aware, and when she touches him on the knees, she's saying, no, no, it'll all be all right, but there's an empathy within her that is remarkable, and and also in the sequence where she's held by him inside the room. She's a marvel. That was the
2: best acting I've ever seen in my whole life. Thank you. Great <laughs> fucking note. So the movie will be released in 35mm, millimeter, 70 millimeter, digital, Dolby Vision. Would you talk a little bit about the theatrical experience?
1: Yeah, I want to say that last night I went to the cast and crew screening, and uh, we've all talked about the demise of Kodak, you know, and it was a major story for a period of time, and then a series of filmmakers—Quentin, Nolan, Paul Thomas—and they all came together and formed this sort of buy film, and we want to keep going. Well, they're doing a great deal more film work now, even in commercials and features, much more than anticipated. And I think that's Kodak's finding a revival. But what has happened is when you release a film on film, what I found last night is that all the places that we do projection are geared for a digital projection. So the perfect spot, the sweet spot is dead center towards the screen. Well, the film projectors have been pushed to the outside edges. They're large. They're usually a relatively large distance apart from the center. So there's a great deal of keystoning that goes on where they have to sort of reconfigure the the shape. And so last night as I was watching, I was dismayed because the top third of the frame was completely out of focus. And it couldn't be touched up to get in repair because I don't know exactly why, but it's so delicate. We don't have the technicians and the equipment. It also was fluttering. I spent so much time making it. I don't want the process of looking at it to be incorrect. I'd rather go to Quinn's house and watch it at his house because he has perfect line of projection and it would be perfect. But in this spot that we saw, it had a misalignment and the result was I was dismayed. I had to leave the room a couple times to try to correct it and my efforts didn't function. It's sad because we've lost, what's now happened is, it's not just film, but if you project in film, we've lost the art of that. In most cases, of course, there will be houses that will have it, but one has to understand that the DCP and the digital, the digital projection is certainly gonna be taking forefront because it's the easiest and, and the most available. The Dolby, I haven't actually seen that version yet. It's being uh, looked at today. It's actually gonna be projected tonight. Quentin has seen a test of it. I was out of the country when he saw a test, and apparently it was the one he liked most, was the Dolby versus the standard version, which will be in most theaters. I watched the standard version with him in the grading house, which is uh, Harbor Lights, with Yvonne Lucas, who was a grader. And we sat together, and I know Quentin was immensely happy. We had gone through a butterfly. What a butterfly means is essentially we went to the lab. We printed out certain sections of... The Digital Intermediate, and we also projected film side by side, the same shots. And so he could look at them and say, oh, do they match? Do they not match? Well, they match so perfectly. And he had the original, so he knew exactly where we were. So the process of the Digital Intermediate took place, and uh, he's happy from what I gather. He still has a smile on his face when he sees me.
2: (laughs) Where do you see cinematography heading?
1: higher and higher ASAs. Uh, I think we'll see, I would like to see lighter lenses, not so bulky. I like like the movement that RED's making towards large format. I think we're gonna see more and more. We're gonna be in 8K not too long in the future. Who knows where that's gonna go. The televisions that are 4K now are gonna be obsolete. We're gonna, it's gonna keep advancing. You know, th- what I do find is that more and more people are of course watching iPads and iPhones and things like that. You have to be aware of that. That's the nature of the beast. Cinematography is altering from the perspective that this generation generally doesn't look through viewfinders. They look at monitors when they operate. And I'm not a keen fan of that particular concept unless a shot requires it. Because your level of focus on a small monitor that's you know six inches is not as strong as your eye on an eyepiece. Because when your eye is on an eyepiece or if you're operating remotely, it's a whole different thing because then you have a big monitor and you can sort of tunnel your vision into it. So the composition is getting lost to some extent with some and not with others. It's It all depends. You know, it's, it's no. I don't think there's any magic bullet formula for like where it's going to go. I think it's only going to get Better and more interesting, and there's a lot more freedom with creativity with what, what we now have. We were able to shoot films on your iPhone, and you know, if you want, or whatever phone you have, it's we're fortunate to bring up a lot more voices that are interesting and unique.
2: Another thing I, I do hear people talking about is the DI process. Are cinematographers always involved in that to the extent that they want to be? And is there something that maybe producers should understand about that?
1: Well, you know, DCP, which is when you do your final correction, whether you shoot on film or you shoot on digital, we walk into a room, which we sit with an individual who is grading our films, which means balancing our color, our densities, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of people don't think the DP is that necessary to be there. And it's always been that way. It's not, it's never; It hasn't altered from day one to now. It's always like, well, if you're available, you come in, it'd be great. And, you know, give us a week, two weeks, you know, cut your rate in half and just, and shoot. I mean, and, and great. And I think, okay, I'll cut my rate in half. I don't really care. It doesn't matter to me. I mean, cut it in a third if you want. I need to be involved with the look of my movie. And the director often times doesn't have the time to do it either. So who is going to do it? Now, when you make a film, Say for example, Batman, or if you're making a Marvel movie, you know, studios gonna be very involved. The same thing with you know, because they want a specific look, they have a specific look, and they're gonna be involved in the way it's being graded. And they only give you a limited amount of time on films now, especially lower budget films, whether it's ten million or thirty. They only give you a limited amount of time in a room. I mean, for Drift, I think we had one week. You know, that I was in that room, and I only spent four days because they graded on their own schedule. Private War, we worked on it, but we had no money for a Private War, so the company, which was then The Shed, which is Harbor Lights now, they basically gave it away to, to do it. Because the film, they can't afford it to grade. I mean, it's extraordinarily expensive, which is an interesting conundrum when you consider that we turn on our digital cameras and we don't shut them off. You used to do long takes, but... In between, you cut, and then you had to reload every ten or eleven minutes anyway. You know, so now you can just roll. Well, somebody has to grade that roll because you're not selecting. You can't just select oh part one, part two of of this long take. Well, the grading of that is done by somebody charging a fair amount of income. You know, whether it's a low budget film or a higher budget film, you're spending hundreds of dollars an hour. To achieve that, so directors often think oh well this is this is good um, but they 're not thinking about well, it took somebody so much time to grade that, and you're spending a lot of income on that grading, so that's a place that we could improve, i think
2: in the case of once upon a time in Hollywood, though you were involved in the
1: yes the intermediate in the case of once upon a time in Hollywood, I was involved pretty intimately with Ivan Lucas, the colorist. And we worked uh, very, very intimately with uh, PhotoCam in creating the dailies on film. Because the film format for Quentin, as we've noted before, is extraordinarily important. And what I find is that in that process, with Yvonne, with who is also the final colorist, so what the advantage of that is that he also comes from the film world, so he's done film many years ago, all the time so he understands points and magenta etc etc which is vastly different than what you do in a digital intermediate world so we would go through and I was very hard upon him in terms of what we saw in the dailies you know it's like I'd go "Mm, you know I didn't like that I did I love this I wish we had more of that I want more color I want more contrast I want deeper blacks I want this I want that and You know, he said, okay, well, let's try a quarter push. Let's try a half push. Let's try this. Let's try that. And we sort of slowly found the place because I would do tests as we were shooting to find that spot, sweet spot. That's more or less because of that. When he went to the dailies process, it became easier. So in other words, I mean, you go from film dailies. Now you go into a room and you create the dailies. Well, the dailies are meant to just replicate the look of the film. That's the goal. And then your final DI, digital intermediate, is also meant replicate the film. Quentin doesn't want windows, which windows means is that if I don't like a wall and it's too bright, in digital, I I can darken it and hide it. Quentin doesn't want that. He wants me on a set to darken that wall. Now, that takes more time, but it's Quentin's evolution as a director. It's his philosophy. And... I acknowledge that philosophy. But in the end, what I was really getting at was because the dailies got so strong, when you come back in the digital intermediate immediate room, you're pretty much full on. You're just duplicating. So a lot of what we did in the original dailies that were digital that went to the Avid were kind of cross-checked across and they were utilized to balance the DCP. It is extraordinarily helpful and I was extraordinarily fortunate to have the same person doing my dailies that also did the final. That's hard to achieve in this business at this point, to have a greater that moves with you every step of the way. But also that movement makes him much more invested in the project. Quinton loves Yvonne, and Yvonne obviously reciprocates that, and it's just complete respect. And that's where this family lives right now.
2: Mark Ulano, the production sound mixer, has been working with Quentin for a long time, supervising sound editor, Wiley Stateman. Tell us a little bit about the relationship in the crew.
1: Well, my relationship with Mark Ulano is very tight because I've been with him for a number of movies. And I believe in the cooperation between sound and visual. And Quentin is a word man So it's even equally more important to capture the original performance by the actors. So I work intimately with him to be able to provide the best placement for a microphone in a shot. And he's a remarkable talent that way. Quinn doesn't like to go into dubbing stages. So that is even more a reason to applaud Mark, but also to support Mark. Other members of the crew I've worked with for the better part of three decades. Uh, Ian Kincaid, the guy for Chris and Charlie, key grip, Gregor Taverner, the first assistant, Dan Sasaki. But what's important is that Dan Sasaki is in charge of lensing at Panavision.
2: Yeah, let's talk about Dan's involvement in this.
1: And, and Dan was very involved because he brought us into new lenses, such as the T lenses, which hadn't really been developed for uh, film. They'd been really developed for large format and didn't have enough. So we altered those lenses to be grounded for film. But what it is is your relationship with these people are the ones that are, te- you know, I let them teach me. I push, but I also listen. You know, I have a I'm very demanding in terms of what I want to achieve, but I also have a high level of reliance upon their skills. And what I liked about what the article did, which and I think we all need to talk more about this, is how vital a crew is to the support like, of me. My crew supports me and they help me achieve better goals. If I don't call out a T12 or whatever the light is, you know, he might put a 20 or he might do this or he might do that. And I'm only saying I want this quality of light. I'm gonna let him. And if he feels there's a better place for it and he says, I think it'd be better over here, I'm listening to that. If Gregor Tavener says to me and my first assistant, we should go with the E on this, the E series lenses. And they're anamorphic because we shot an anamorphic. We have E series, C series, T series on this film. And there's a mixed match of them about equal proportions. And each lens has a different characteristic. It may take a flare one way. It may be more wide open. It may be developed for closer focus. And Gregor has a a better sense of what each lens is than I do. So when we're setting up a shot, go well this one's a little better with the wide i think we should work with this and i would go okay if we've got more clarity in the width let's go with that we a relationship is built on trust and i think that's extraordinarily vital It's the same way i'm there to make quentin's life easier you know if he requests something which is complex i don't look at him and say no I'm going to look at him and say, we're going to get that done. We'll figure out the way to do it. And my crew is the same way. What Quentin wants, we're going to do. And that's true with any director I work with. I'm always going to try to achieve what they have their mind set on. And with a director such as Quentin, who spent five years of his life basically writing this, he already sees the film. It's in his head. So the greatest compliment you get from Quentin is, it's exactly like I thought it would be. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than
0: that. (laughs) Line? Cut! Embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people!
2: (laughs) What are the discussions you had in pre-production before you even started?
1: Pre-production for me started with being asked up to his house. And I went to his house to read the script. And first we sat outside we had a cocktail. I came by Uber, by the way. I had a cocktail, just to make sure that you all know. And then he said, okay, well, why don't you go inside and read the script? The time I'd gone before, he'd sent me to a private room for Hateful. So I thought, okay, I'm going back to that room, and I'll sit in this like his office and read. This time he sat me at the kitchen table. And Quentin was in directly in front of my eye line moving about playing with the videos and this and that and the television and constantly looking over his shoulder. And he'd be like, he's watching me. And it's like this huge weight was coming down upon me. And I was like making constant notes because the references within the script are enormous. So I had pages upon pages of whether it's actors or whether it's a series or it's this or it's that or it's music or this, I was writing it all down so that when I left, I'd take those papers with me and research everything. I finished the script. You know, it was probably three hours. I, you know, I told him my response, which is, oh, this is amazing, but Quentin, where's the last act? Because he didn't give me the last act. I said, well, you're not gonna be able to read that till you go to the office. I have it in a safe, you'll read it later. When we're closer, from... but, but, but Quentin, I, got, I I like, you can't do this to me. You're like, I gotta read the ending, let me read the ending. No, you'll get to read it later. And then we, you know, that was like the beginning. And we had dinner, Daniela, his fiance at that time. We all ate together and then uh, she left and Quintus started to play what the soundtrack would be, parts of it, not exactly the parts that are in the film, but to give me a flavor for what the mood would be and what would constantly be a thread throughout the film. And that was quite remarkable, because then I suddenly felt it. And the same thing happened when we started scouting. In the scouting process, in the van, with production design director and producers, everything was playing KHJ. It was KHJ all the time. So you're listening to every single one he's recorded by the time you finish scouting. It's like all KHJ. So you're in the flavor, even when you walk out of the bus, to look at a location, you're thinking 1969. 1969 and it's just rolling around and as we scouted i became closer and closer to the ideas of where he was heading because now we'd be speaking to production designer like barbara ling and be saying like you know i see this 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 and i want this 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 and this here and i want to see that you know it's like and so as we went along i began to see ah i started to visualize where he's going in his head shots he'd had some shots listed in the script, but then he started to evolve to the next step. And as we honed in closer and closer to the film, I started to get a list of shots that he was thinking of. And the more complex shots that there were, I shared them with my crew. And we began to like, well, how are we going to do this? Because this is the location, and this is where he wants to come to. And then we brainstormed through it. Even if we did it separately from the office, we'd go by ourselves and sit at the location and try to figure it out
2: do you want to give a shout out to the key members of your crew
1: of course my crew is the best in the world I love you all and thank you so much for uh, helping me get through this project and I hope you're all proud of the tremendous work that you did
2: thank you so much for joining us
1: well it's my pleasure